Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Strange People, Strange Places, The Geography of Salvation, and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, October the 14th, 2007. In my Bible, the Old Testament runs to about 1,300 pages. I suspect that many readers have vowed to read straight through the entire scriptures, only to bog down somewhere before the New Testament. I know that I have. To simplify Yahweh's long drama of salvation with his elect people, Israel, we could say that it revolves around two major acts in two different places. First, after 430 years of slavery, God liberated Israel from Egypt in the Exodus sometime around 1400 BC. Then, 800 years later, there's tragic exile to Babylon in the year 586 BC. These seminal events of Exodus and exile reverberate throughout both the Old and New Testaments as two paradigms or models of the way that God works in human history, and even the way he works in our own personal histories. The Exodus is a drama of liberation from oppression and exploitation, of miraculous deliverance, of God's mighty acts of power on regal display of his dramatic intervention to shatter the enemy, to work wonders and break the powers of bondage. It's no wonder the Exodus is mentioned throughout the Bible as a reminder of God's power to save and is celebrated at Passover even today by Jews. The psalmist for this week, for example, proclaims, How awesome are your deeds! Psalm 66 verse 3. The Exodus story reminds us that we have every reason to hope and to pray for God's dramatic act of salvation, both in the world at large and in our own private lives. But with the exile, the geography of salvation changed. For the ancient Hebrews, the destruction of Jerusalem and deportation to pagan Babylon was unthinkable beyond comprehension. What had happened? Where were Yahweh's mighty acts of power? Wasn't Israel God's inviolable and elect people? And if so, how could he surrender them to a pagan nation? Exile to Babylon began a period of subjugation, servitude, banishment, and captivity. It seemed to signal failure, isolation, loneliness, and even punishment. Certainly, it might have meant despair for the elite Jews who were deported, like Daniel, and for the common people of the land left behind in the rubble of what used to be Jerusalem. How was a Hebrew deported to Babylon torn from home and everything familiar and dear, to understand life in exile. 
In the lectionary this week, the prophet Jeremiah offers advice that few people probably wanted to hear. Writing from besieged Jerusalem, he sent a letter to the exiles who had been deported to Babylon. Here's what he wrote in Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 to 7. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Jeremiah tells the exiles to embrace their disaster rather than to resist it. There was salvation in the strange place of Babylon, as well as in the familiar place of Israel. He tells them to let go of their past, to accept their new circumstances, however unthinkable. He says that contrary to all appearances, despite the foreign geography, at that moment in Yahweh's story of salvation, they were better off in pagan Babylon than left behind in holy Jerusalem. God was still working, only now in the most unlikely of ways and in the most improbable of places. Celebrating God's mighty acts of power, his decisive miracles of deliverance is easy. Who doesn't long for a personal exodus punctuated by a divine exclamation point, whether that be for work, at home, a marriage, finances, children, the list is nearly endless. But we know that sometimes things don't work out like we wish. They don't work out like we think they should. And they don't work out as we sometimes pray. History can take a bitter turn. Catastrophe can overtake us, sometimes because of our own making, and other times for no apparent reason at all. Living in exile, far from home, in a strange space or place, bereft of all one considers good and familiar, is difficult. Living in exile demands revised expectations. Courage to believe that God is still at work, no matter how bleak the circumstances. Learning a new language and grammar, much as the Jews settling into Babylon learned a new tongue. Learning to articulate your lived experience in a new place. And certainly exile requires perseverance over the long haul. Living in exile also requires hope about the future, no matter how dark the present. That too was part of God's message through Jeremiah, 
in chapter 29, verse 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you future and a hope. That future was far off for those Babylonian exiles. Seventy years and two generations before the Persian king Cyrus would rout the Babylonian regime and permit the Hebrews to return home. Hope for the future is also an admission that we can't have it all now in the present. Some of the exiles never returned to Jerusalem. It's easy to imagine that Yahweh, who called Israel as his elect people, worked only in Israel, on home turf, so to speak. Jeremiah says that's not true. Jer Jeremiah reminds us that God's at work always and everywhere, in exodus from Egypt to be sure, but also in exile to Babylon. And furthermore, from the readings this week, we learn that God is at work not only in strange and foreign places like Babylon, he's at work in foreign people like Naaman. Naaman epitomizes the foreign outsider for several reasons. His story is in 2 Kings chapter 5. Naaman was a military officer from pagan Syria, a major enemy of Israel. The narrator praises Naaman in glowing terms. Quote, he was a valiant soldier, a great man in the sight of his master, and highly regarded. End quote. And then the narrator adds a stunning detail. Through Naaman, the Lord had given victory to Syria. God gave victory to Israel's enemy through a pagan officer? Yes. And finally, Naaman had a skin disease, sometimes wrongly translated as leprosy. His disease, as Frank Spina notes in his book, The Faith of the Outsider, might have caused Naaman some medical problems, but his real complications were social, religious, and moral because people with such impurities were automatically stigmatized as ritually unclean, and if ritually unclean, therefore excluded from God's community and its worship. This so-called great man, Naaman, embarked on a state visit with elaborate gifts to visit the king of Israel only to encounter a nameless little girl from Israel who told him to seek healing from the Hebrew prophet Elisha. The irony is unmistakable, and Naaman's response is predictable. When this anonymous Hebrew child instructed the renowned military officer not to seek help from the corridors of political power, but from a religious prophet who told him to wash himself seven times in the Jordan River, he was incensed. But Naaman obeyed. He was healed. And then he was converted. He says, Now I know that there's no God in all the world except in Israel. Finally, Naaman took some dirt 
from Israel back to Syria. Quote, For I will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. End quote. Perhaps Naaman wanted to establish a portable sacred space back home. Although back home in Syria, he continued to worship in the temple of the deity Rimon, Naaman asked for what might be called advanced forgiveness for that compromise. He declared his fidelity to Israel's God. And so again we see God's mysterious means. Naaman the outsider joined the insider community. A nameless little girl advised a great military leader and the prophetic power of Elijah subverted social and political conventions. God works in strange places, like Babylon. We should never forfeit the hopes, dreams, and prayers for Exodus deliverance. But neither should we forget the exile motif of living in banishment. Human experience assures us that we will need the latter paradigm as well as the former. There are periods of darkness and gloom when we feel far from home, and it's natural to pray for Exodus deliverance. Christian maturity, though, means putting one foot in front of another and remembering that Yahweh is no less present in exilic darkness than in Exodus deliverance. God also works in strange people, like Naaman. Anyone who considers himself an insider should beware of presumption. God, we so often pray, I thank you that I'm not like all other men. Luke 18.11 To our peril, we ignore, shun, and vilify the foreigner or the outsider as strange dangerous and unclean. We smugly imagine that we possess the truth as few others do, rather than humbly ask God in his mercy that we might be transformed by his truth. Rather than considering solidarity with the lost, the lonely, and the outsider a privilege that enriches our lives, we so often construe the biblical narrative in a narcissistic manner to serve our own petty needs. Paul, the consummate Christian insider, even contemplated the real and harrowing possibility of his own banishment to outsider perdition. 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27 And now for further reflection. What have been your experiences of exodus deliverance or of exilic darkness? When have you discerned God working in strange places or strange people? Consider the gospel for this week from Luke chapter 17, 11 to 19, where Jesus heals ten lepers only one leper returned to give thanks, a Samaritan foreigner who experienced not only healing, but salvation. And so the outsider foreigner became the hero of the story.
And finally, consider the new book by Mother Teresa, in which she describes her own long periods of exilic darkness. The name of her new book is Come, Be My Light by Mother Teresa. For books this week, we have a review of Too Soon Old, Too Late Smart, 30 True Things You Need to Know Now by Gordon Livingston, New York, Marlowe & Company, 2004, 168 pages. This is a guest book review by Richard Warden. Richard Warden is a retired minister and family social worker now in private practice. He lives in Medicine Hat, Alberta, Canada. Consider the story about the three puzzle rooms of life. Once upon a time, life was like entering puzzle room number one. As you entered the room, a person was given the pieces to the puzzle of life and a picture to follow. Life came together by imitating the picture. Later, life became like entering puzzle room number two. Once again, a person was given the pieces of the puzzle of life, but this time no picture to follow. Trial and error were used to put life together. But today, life is like puzzle room number three. The pieces of the puzzle of life are offered. No model or picture is available. And when a person manages to get two or three pieces of the puzzle to fit, suddenly the puzzle changes shape. Through his involvement in the Vietnam War and its consequences, Author Gordon Livingston describes passionately and sincere, sincerely what he calls the third puzzle room of life. He does so from the perspective of a psychiatrist and a psychotherapist. He's also well acquainted with grief, managing to live through the pain of divorce and the death of two sons. Livingston brings to the work of psychotherapy and pastoral care an important approach which tends to be overshadowed by popular methods, whether biblical or pop-psychological. He writes, quote, Therapy, properly done, is a combination of confessional, reparenting, and mentoring. End quote. Life is about change, and change can be for the better or the worse. Livingston strongly reminds us that change is a choice. The choice is often impeded by medication and systems which can perpetuate dependency. Livingston's 30 short articles address the nature of the human personality, habits, death, adoption, perfectionism, depression, suicide, forgiveness, happiness, parenting, divorce, and marriage. He encourages caregivers to be listeners looking for the connection in what is heard, to hear the hidden fears, and to promote hope. What makes psychotherapy work for Livingston is love, which is willingly shared. He writes, 
We are never out of choices, no matter how desperate our circumstances. While expressing a non-judgmental approach, Livingston does not profess any neat and tidy faith. He is taking what he calls a time-out from religion. He's in the third puzzle room of life as he attempts to come to terms with his own personal losses. However, he does offer caregivers this insight. While flying an airplane, Livingston discovered that his map and the features on the ground did not agree. He was informed by an officer, if the map does not agree with the ground, then the map is wrong. Livingston confesses, quote, I have learned that our passage through life consists of an effort to get the map in our heads to conform to the ground on which we walk, end quote. The book's foreword is written by Elizabeth Edwards, a grieving parent and herself a cancer patient. Livingston expresses the end of grieving succinctly. Quote, Coming to terms with our past is inevitably a process of forgiveness, of letting go, the simplest and most difficult of all human endeavors, until the moment you do it. Gordon Livingston too soon old, too late smart. 30 True Things You Need to Know Now. A book reviewed by Richard Warden of Alberta, Canada. For films this week, I review Flags of Our Fathers from the year 2006. In this epic film about the Battle of Iwo Jima, Director Clint Eastwood triangulates three different viewpoints about the war. First are the soldiers themselves, normal human beings who resist the notion of being labeled heroes and who, in contrast to the war sloganeers, know what combat really is like. These men are bravery and loyalty personified. Then, there's the vantage point of real war in all its vulgarity, degradation, terror, violence, and dehumanization. 70,000 Americans stormed the island of Iwo Jima, and some 6,800 died. 22,000 Japanese defended their land, and 20,000 of them died. Thirdly, there is the government propaganda machine back home that manipulates public opinion to send its sons into this meat grinder. Almost every American will recognize the iconic photograph of the six soldiers raising the flag on the top of the tiny island of Iwo Jima. But very few Americans know the reality behind that iconic image. Director Clint Eastwood shows how the U.S. government manipulated the image, distorted the historical facts, exploited the unwitting soldiers who raised the flag, and turned a mundane moment of wartime into, prop into a propagandistic farce. 
The film is based upon the books by James Bradley and Ron Powers, which tells the real story about the real flag raising. Bradley's father was the last survivor of the six soldiers who raised that flag. Clint Eastwood's sequel, Letters from Iwo Jima, tells the same story of the same battle from the viewpoint of the Japanese. Although you can watch the films in either direction, they're not sequel. Flags of Our Fathers from the year 2006. And finally, we've, a, we've posted a poem by Phyllis Wheatley, who lived from 1753 to 1784. Phyllis Wheatley was born in Senegal, then taken as a slave to the United States at the age of eight. There she was purchased by a Boston tailor named John Wheatley, whose daughter taught Phyllis to read English, Latin, and Greek. Her first and only book of poetry, a compilation of 39 poems, was entitled Poems on Various Subjects, Religious and Moral, published in 1773 in London. Phyllis Wheatley was the first African-American to publish a book of poetry and the first woman of any race to publish a book in America. She died in Boston in extreme poverty at the age of 31. Here's Phyllis Wheatley, A Hymn to the Morning. Attend my lays, ye ever-honored nine. Assist my labors, and my strains refine. In smoothest numbers pour the notes along. For bright Aurora now demands my song. Aurora hail in all the thousand eyes, Which deck thy progress through the vaulted skies. The morn awakes and wide extends her rays. On every leaf the gentle zephyr plays. Harmonious lays the feathered race resume. Dart the bright eye and shake the painted plume. Ye shady groves your verdant gloom display to shield your poet from the burning day. Calliope awake the sacred lyre while thy fair sisters fan the pleasing fire. The bowers, the gales, the variegated skies in all their pleasures in my bosom rise. See in the east the illustrious king of day. His rising radiance drives the shades away. But, oh, I feel his fervid beams too strong, and scarce begun concludes the abortive song. A Hymn to the Morning by Phyllis Wheatley Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, October the 14th, 2007. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.